Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show, the most amazing show ever, right? So you are listening to season two. This is episode three, and I just finished part one, and now this is part two of the history of religions and their gods. And I am your host, the Skeptical Ghost Heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins. So today is March 23rd, 2021, and in this episode, it is simply entitled Josephus and the Jewish Wars, Part 2. <laughs> so just what we just did, and fixing at will. Um, so in this episode, we will continue to look at the parallels that are found between the works of Josephus and his book, The Wars of the Jews, or the Jewish Wars, and the canonized Gospels. See what those little overlaps are. But now we will dig deep into some of those most popular New Testament narratives and themes, and we'll examine those verses very, very closely, and then see if they might have been borrowed from some of these works from Josephus. Or maybe not. I don't know. We're just going to look at it. It's not up for me to decide, guys. I have my own opinion, and I'm very clear about what it is. But at the end of the day, I'm going to lay out all of the evidence that I can find out in front of you. We're going to lay it all out on the table, take a look at it, and then we all will make a decision from there. We can talk about it. I want to talk about it. So thank you all for listening, and please share with a friend if you think they would benefit from this show, and absolutely spread the love. And if you give me an hour, I will give you the history of the world, and so much more. So if you're ready for this adventure, let's do it! The first gospel to be canonized by the Roman bishops and the church elite was the book of Mark, written sometime after the destruction of the temple, probably around that 75 to 76 of the Common Era. And this author backdates his Jesus' ministry to the year 30, which obviously enables him to be able to foresee the events of the future. In other words, he uses his Jesus. His Jesus was able to accurately prophesy events for the coming Andropolis and ultimate destruction of the Second Temple, because they had already occurred. To fulfill this narrative, this author creates or created fictitious histories from recordings from Josephus' Wars of the Jews to document that Jesus had, in fact, lived contrary to what Paul imagined of a celestial Christ, but positions Jesus as a historical person and that his prophecies did, in fact, come to pass. Plus, he uses a 40-year Jewish generation, which is a Jewish tradition theme that Jews wandering the desert until they were free of sin, the back date, 70, to the year 30. Convenient and smart, right? It is literally really quite brilliant what he did, if you actually think about it. After about 40 years, the evil Jews were destroyed. Thus, sin has ended. I think this is what this guy was actually trying to say. So again, I kind of sped through it a little bit. The 40-year window that the author from Mark used for creating the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the same amount of time in the Exodus theme where Moses roamed the desert for 40 years and could not, you know, or until they were free of sin. And so that is kind of the narrative on here. And so... If the temple goes down in 70, we bump back to 30. 
So this author is creating the 40-year window until Jews are free of sin. And that is identified by the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be stacked upon another, leveled to the ground, right? Now, one needs to also consider that as Christianity describes its origins, it was not only supernatural, but also historically illogical. Christianity, a movement that would encourage pacifism and obedience to Rome and its emperors, claims to have emerged from a nation engaged in a century-long struggle with Rome? I'm not seeing how this makes sense. This is an analogy to Christianity's purported origins that might be a cult established by a Polish Jew during World War II that set up his headquarters in Berlin and encouraged its members to pay taxes to the Third Reich in the name of Adolf Hitler. Does not make sense. Does this make any sense when looked at underneath this light? Hell no, it doesn't. But when one looks at the form of early Christianity, you don't see Judea. You only see Rome and Rome alone. Think about it. The church's structure of authority, all its sacraments, its college of bishops, its title of the head of the religion, the supreme pontiff, the pope, were all based on Roman tradition, not Judaic, as one should think when considering that we're talking about a Jewish Messiah from Eastern Palestine, the son of the Jewish God. It just doesn't add up. Somehow, Judea left very little trace on, on the form of religion that supposedly originated inside of it now. Now, I think that that's very strange, don't you? Maybe not, I don't know. But what we do know is, early Christianity was also extremely Roman in its entire worldview. That is, like the Roman Empire, the movement saw itself ordained by God to spread throughout the world. And before Christianity, no religion has ever been known to have seen itself so destined to conquer or to become the only religion for all the only religion for all mankind for that matter. In fact, the type of Judaism described in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, was actually very selective as to who was allowed to join in its community. Not how Christianity is out trying to conquer and take on continents. We know that the Jews never proselytized in their religion, as a matter of fact. They kept it to themselves. Remember, it was only ever meant for them and their eyes only. Probably because of all the shit that they were saying about their neighboring kingdoms. And that was never very flattering. And it was actually quite condemning. We have a passage from the Damascus documents. And it actually says, I'm going to go in quotations here. No madman or lunatic or simpleton or fool or blind man or maimed or lame or deaf man and no minor shall enter the community of the angels of the holiness are with them. End the quote. So this exclusionary approach was the mirror opposite of Christianity's. In fact, if you compare this verse found in um, chapter 15, verse 30, who writes sometime after Mark in the 80s, you get this. And definitely pay attention to Matthew's comical editorial decision here. I think it's quite clear to what he was saying. So in quotation, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those who were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast down at the feet of Jesus. And he then healed them. 
Now, to try to understand just how it was that Christianity had managed to establish itself within the Roman Empire, one would need to sift through mysteries piled atop of mysteries of the unknown. For example, how did a religion that began as a verbal tradition in Hebrew and Aramaic change into one whose only surviving scripture is actually written almost entirely in Greek? And another one of the most historically illogical or perhaps absurd aspects of Christianity's origin was within the Messiah itself. Jesus had a political perspective that was precisely polar opposite that of the son of David, who was awaited for by the Jews of this time. In fact, Josephus even records that what most inspired the Jewish rebels to pick a fight with the Romans was their belief in this Judaic prophecies that foresaw a world ruler or this powerful Messiah that would emerge from Judea. And these are the same prophecies that the New Testament claims predicted a pacifist? I don't think so. Actually, many of Jesus' pacifistic views were borrowed from a first century philosopher by the name of Musonius Rufus, who just also happened to be a contemporary to Mark. Makes me wonder if they knew each other. They definitely knew of each other. So we're going to take a look at some of these documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this particular one, it's, um, it's quantified as Quamran Cave number four, as are many of them, um, item 547. So literally, it's 4Q547. And in this document, it is confirmed there that the Jews indeed took this prediction to belong to themselves as they awaited for a Messiah who would be the Son of God. So I quote <clears throat> in my best Lord voice, Son of God, he will be called, and the Son of the Most High, they will name him. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. He will judge the earth in truth. The great God will give people into his hand. All of them will be cast down before him. His sovereignty is everlasting sovereignty. End quote. Now let's compare the next two verses from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Messiah envisioned by the authors was like Jesus as well, who was also a shepherd. Although this is only in Luke, if you remember. Although not one that would be bringing peace like our New Testament authors. So here's from Zechariah, um, chapter 13, verse 7. Begin quote. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but I will turn my hand upon the little ones. End quote. Now let's consider this one from Ezekiel, chapter 9, verse 4 from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And begin quote. Now those who hear him are the flocks afflicted. These will escape in the period of God's visitation, but those who remain will be offered up to the sword. Then the Messiah, or Aaron, and the Israel comes, as it was the period of the first visitation, as he reported by the hand of Ezekiel. A mark shall be put on the forehead of those who sigh and groan. End quote. And then let's consider this next one. This is from the um, documents called the Damascus Covenant. And I begin, quote, But those who remained were given up to the sword of vengeance, the avenger of the covenant. End quote. Now also let's consider this passage that comes from a targum. 
What's a targum? A targum is basically, basically, it's a loosely written piece of literature that was taken from the Old Testament in Hebrew and then translated into Aramaic. So you, now you got a translation and into another translation of a different language that goes through another set of scribes, but they wrote very loosely and kind of put things into their own context, if you would. But this particular um, scribe for this particular targum describes a warrior messiah. And clearly this would have been more of what the nature of their King Messiah of the Jews would actually look like to them, considering in the time that this um, scribe was writing in. But as Josephus said himself, this would have elevated the Jews in taking on the war with the Romans with such great passion and intensity. So this particular piece that I'm going to quote, so this is literally from a targum, and it's called Pseudo-Jonathan on Genesis. Chapter 49, verses 10 through 12. And I begin, quote, How lovely is the King Messiah, who is to rise from the house of Judah. He girds his loins, and he goes out to wage war on those who hate him, killing kings and rulers, the reddening of the mountains with the blood of their slain, with his garments dripped in blood. He is like the one who treads grapes in the winepress. End quote. So now understanding what these particular scribes and these particular authors were trying to translate to their followers, so these follower Jews, is a very different Messiah than what we get. So in this light, both in the New Testament and from the histories of Josephus, who write in the First Testament, mid to late first century, each imply that the Messiah was not the nationalist leader who had been foreseen, but rather a pacifist who encouraged cooperation with Rome and its leaders. For example, let's take a look at Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter 541. When anyone conscripts you for one mile, go along for two, right? So why is that even interesting? So, so if you picture that the Roman military at the time, the Roman military law permitted its soldiers to conscript, which is literally the right to command civilians to carry their backpacks, carry these 65-pound packs for the length of one mile. Now, in fact, Roman roads had mile markers, or milestones, if you would, that would line the roads, would line the streets throughout the city, and even leaving the city. So that there would be no dispute over whether or not this requirement had been met by the civilians who were carrying the packs of the soldiers. Now, why would this apocalyptic messiah, this world ruler coming to destroy the enemies as foreseen, as foreseen by Judaism as a xenophobic world ruler urged by Jews to literally go the extra mile for the Roman army? This sounds strange, doesn't it? It absolutely sounds strange. So when someone compares the militaristic messiahs described in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've been looking at and observing for the handful of last episodes and other early Judaic literature against this pacifistic messiah that we get in the New Testament, one aspect of the lost history of Judea now seems quite visible to us. It's extremely polar opposite. As one can imagine, an intellectual battle was waged over this nature of this messiah. 
The New Testament stood on one side of this struggle, claiming that a pacifistic Messiah had appeared who had advocated cooperation with Rome. And on the side of this theological divide stood the Jewish zealots of the rebellion who awaited a militaristic Messiah who was to wage war against the Romans and to lead them in a campaign and in its control to regain control back over Judea and Israel and the temple and well as all the Jews. Now we also have among Christianity's oldest surviving records, it is the epistles of Clement, who writes to the Corinthians. He writes this letter out to the Corinthians, right? So, and it dates somewhere around the end of the first century, right around 96 of the Common Era. Now the letter was supposedly written by the Pope at the time, Clement I, to a congregation of Christians who had apparently rebelled against the church's authority. And this was happening a lot in that first Actually, the first three centuries of the church, as you have to imagine that we talked about before, there were dozens of different variations, as there are now, of Christianity, all believing in different things, believing in different gods, different ways of achieving salvation. And so you have to imagine that there were challenges of authority. And so now somebody of authority has got to step in. But it shows that even at the onset or the get-go of the religion, the bishops of Rome was able to give orders to the Church of Corinth, and that the Church of Rome used the Roman army as an example of the kind of discipline and obedience that is expected from all the churches and all of its members. So this is strange, right? So Clements writes, and I begin, quote, and begin, quote, the church of the God which sojourneth in Rome to the church of God which sojourneth in Corinth. Let us mark the soldiers that are enlisted under our rulers. How exactly, how readily, how submissively they execute the orders given to them. All are not perfects, nor rulers of thousands, nor rulers of hundreds, nor rulers of fifties, and so on and so forth. But each man in his own rank executeth the orders given by the kings and the governors. End quote. And you'll find that in 1 Clement, chapter 37, verses 2 through 3. So one has to ask, how did the church's authority structure come into existence that would resemble the Roman military in the first place? And who established it? And then who gave the bishops such absolute power, absolute control over the church? Over the churches, excuse me. So Cyprian, who is a third century bishop of Carthage, actually writes in quotation, The bishop in the church and the church is the bishop. That person is not in the church. End quotation. And the one also needs to ask himself, why was Rome supposedly the center of Christian persecution? To be chosen for the place of the religion's headquarters. That doesn't make sense. But we know that the Christian persecution did not happen in the sense that Christians believe today. They think that Christians were out basically with the targets on their heads set up for murder. Now, yes, there were small little infractions, small little um, battles that took place in little particular areas. 
but not to the death or to the scenarios that um, Christian apologists like to paint today. Because think about it, this was all about against Jewish rebels. And Christians at the time, especially during the first century, was so small, so insignificant, that Josephus, nobody had anything to say about these about this particular group popping up. And the churches weren't that massive yet. So there was no was no persecution. The only thing that there was is those Christians that were refusing to worship the Roman state gods. There would be small little battles that would take place in those particular cities. And I just I'm going to digress for a minute because it's important. If you are if your neighbor is a Christian and he's not worshiping the city-state gods, especially the god that might be over the growth of crops, the growth of rain, or even the growth of health and, you know, um, and, and recovery, you know, the, the god of medicine or whatever it would be. And all of a sudden, your daughter comes down ill or your crops don't particularly grow or, um, you know, there hasn't been rain in six, seven months and your crops are drying up. And then you got this Christian guy that's living next to you and he refuses to, refuses to accept those particular gods and worship them. So that's when we start seeing these little problems that might develop within the area. But there was no narrow persecution he honestly didn't care. He was concerned about the rebellious Jews. So other than these little small pockets of um, Christian persecution, um, but this would also explain why the Bishop of Rome would be made the Supreme Pontiff over the entire religion and all of the churches and all of its congregations. So, in fact, we even know that the Flavians, the Flavian family was recorded as being among the first Christians during the movement. Perhaps the imperial family did have something to do with the jump start, uh, or, or perhaps even the invention of the religion. Who knows? But you got to admit, the, it, the evidence is quite interesting when you really look at it. Now, yes, Joseph Atwill, the conspiracy theorist, is absolutely, uh, and I haven't really got to it yet, but he suggests that the Flavians, underneath the, or with the help of Josephus, wrote the four Gospels. Now, just with me saying that out loud, you realize how absurd that is and how impossible it is. But what I will say is my personal feeling is that um, I, I, I believe that Mark, the author for Mark, was probably in cahoots and understood what the Roman elites were looking for and needed to do with the creation of a humanized Jesus to help pacify the, the, the Jewish rebels, and especially in, and for future generations. So I think that was probably what was going on, but I don't believe that Josephus wrote the four Gospels by any means whatsoever. So by the year 80 of the Common Era, Titus decides to establish an imperial cult for his father, who had just passed away during the previous year. Now, the cult was even politically important to Titus because Vespasian's deification, Vespasian, if you remember, is Titus's father, it would break the Julio-Claudian line of divine succession and thereby secure the throne for the Flavian family for eternity. Well, at least as long as the Flavian sons existed, that is. But because only the Roman Senate could bestow this title of Deus, Titus would first need to convince them that his father had, in fact, actually been a god. <laughs> However, there was evidently some problems in making this happen, and it took a little bit of time. But Vespasian's consecratio did not occur for six months after his death, 
which is actually incredibly a long time for this to tap, for this kind of event to happen. So Titus also went as far as to create his own priesthood that was called the, the Flamens, who would be responsible for administrating to this cult. We know that the cult of Vespasian was not just restricted or isolated to Rome, and appointments were made throughout many of the other provinces. So, additionally, in the areas surrounding Judea, a Rome bureaucracy called the Commune of Asia would then be in charge of overseeing the entire cult. Notably, all seven of the Christian churches of Asia that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 11, had agencies in this commune located within them. And that's pretty interesting when you think about it. And I'm guessing that most of you listening to this haven't even got that far into the book of Revelation or considered to look into it, but the book of Revelation is addressed to the seven churches of Asian Minor. So Titus, he also had a sister, and her name was Domitilia. Matter of fact, I believe it's even an Italian city now. But upon her death, Titus was actually able to secure a deification for her as well. So in going through the process of deifying his father and now his sister, as well as establishing their family cult, Titus received an education and a skill that very few other humans had ever had the opportunity to possess. And this is the art and the skill of creating a new religious cult. So in fact, Titus not only created as well as administered his religion, he himself is actually considered a prophet in his own right. In fact, while he was emperor, he even received the title of Pontifex Maximus, which has basically made him the high priest of the Roman religions, as well as the official head of the Roman College of Priests. And what is that? That's basically the same title and the same office that was held as once Christianity came into place of the Roman state and the religion. It was basically the pope position. It would assume the position of pope. And his role of Pontifex Maximus, Titus, he was responsible for a large collection of prophecies as well that are actually found in the Annuals Maximi every single year. The, and officially recorded celestial and other signs as well as events that had followed these omens. So the future generations would be better able to understand what his divine will was. Though obviously it was all fabricated, right? Because it would produce this literature for the emperor to show what his divinity was, that he was at the level of a god. And this is important, especially for him to become deitized upon his particular death. Also, this guy, Titus, was unusually literate, so smart. He was so literate that he even claimed to be able to take shorthand faster than any secretary. And he often boasted that he could forge any man's signature. It's quite the skill. And even stated by Suetonius in his archives of Lives of Caesars, that if in any different circumstances, Titus could have become an official professional or the greatest forger in all of history. And so Suetonius also records that Titus possessed conspicuous mental gifts and made speeches and wrote verses in Latin as well as in Greek, and that his memory was extraordinary, which is also found in his archives, The Lives of Caesar. So now we have to talk about Titus's brother, Domitian like his sister Domitilia. So I guess Vespasian and his bride um, weren't all that creative, but 
We're talking about Domitian. To talk about who would succeed his brother to the throne, an emperor over Rome, and who also used the power and influence of religion to his advantage. In fact, in addition to deifying his brother, Domitian attempted to link himself to the planet Jupiter, the supreme god of the Roman Empire, by having the Senate decree that the god had mandated his rule. So not only did the Flavians create a religious cult, they also performed some recorded miracles. As a matter of fact, in the following passage that we're going to talk about, I'm going to quote some, something from Tacitus here. Vespasian is recorded as curing one man's blindness as well as another man's withered limb, if you would. And both are miracles that the Gospels will have Jesus perform. In the New Testament, of course. So Tacitus tells, his, tells this in his histories, written between 100 and 110 of the Common Era, about these events that took place in 69 Common Era, in the time of Vespasian. So in my best uh, Tacitus voice, and I begin, quote, One of the common people of Alexandria, well known for his blindness, begged Vespasian that he would deign to moisten his cheeks and his eyeballs with his spit. Another with a diseased hand prayed that the limb might feet the print of a Caesar's foot. And so Vespasian accomplished what was required and requested. The hand was instantly restored to its use, and the light of day again shone upon the blind. End quotation. Now, of course, the Gospels also record that Jesus used the same method for curing blindness by placing his spit on the blind man's eyelids. And here's the quote from John chapter 9, 6-7. And I begin, quote, After thus speaking, he spat on the ground, and then, kneading the dust and spit into clay, he smeared the clay over the man's eyelids and then said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So, end quote. So, that name literally means sent. So he went and washed his eyes and returned able to see. And many other miraculous stories would be circulated about Vespasian that did indeed suggest his divinity and his powers as a god. But now Josephus, or let's call him Flavius Josephus, that is, was in fact an adopted member of the imperial family. He also had a direct connection, one could say, to, to the beginnings of Christianity. How? Well, his works provided the New Testament with its primary independent historical documentation and were most certainly read by his imperial patrons throughout Rome and most everywhere else for that matter. In fact, Titus even goes as far as to order the publication of the Wars of the Jews. Even in his autobiography, Josephus writes that Titus was so desirous that the knowledge of these affairs should be taken from these books and these books alone, that even affixed his own signature them and gave orders for their immediate publication. So that's pretty interesting, right? So now you've got this Roman ruler, this emperor, who actually went into status to, be, to become a god, signs off for the entire Roman provinces, or provinces of Rome, including its churches, including all the pontiffs, to have this as part of the circulation. That's very, very interesting to lock on to. Now, perhaps the most unusual connection between Christianity and its imperial family was the fact that Tacitus Flavius 
fulfilled every single one of Jesus' doomsday prophecies, as told through the canonized gospel writers, Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, and then, of course, John at the end, who writes late into the 90s. So as we discussed before, the parallels between the description of Titus's military campaign as told through the wars of the Jews and Jesus' prophecies caused early church scholars to believe that Christ had, in fact, seen into the future because the gospel writers placed for Jesus some 40 years earlier, as we talked about before, which was actually a strategy. So when the Christians, when they read the gospels, although written from the late 70s through the early 100s, it would appear that Jesus foresaw the future when these things came to pass, and then recorded in the wars of the Jews. So now, when the destruction of the temple and the encircling of Jerusalem with a wall, the town of Galilee begins brought low, and the destruction of what Jesus describes as the wicked generation, and all been prophesied by Jesus and then came to pass during Titus's military campaign through Judea, a campaign that, like Jesus's ministry, this is interesting, it began in Galilee and it ended in Jerusalem. This is exactly why many scholars for the past century felt that the Flavians were potentially linked to the Christian cult, because of the unusual amount of facts, as well as traditions, that were shared and that we're going to explore a little bit more. In fact, the early church documents come right out and flatly state that the imperial family produced some of the religion's first martyrs, not to mention the pope who would supposedly succeed Peter. Historians are aware that the Flavians created much of the literature that provides documentation for the religion, as well as responsible for its oldest cemetery, as a matter of fact, and even housed individuals that were named in the New Testament that were within their imperial court. Furthermore, the family was responsible for Jesus' apocalyptic prophecies, literally as well as all historically coming to pass. That's why some of the historians feel that these connections possibly deserve a little bit more attention that was given to it so far, so far to date. And scholars are continuing to dig into this massive amounts of information that we're finally able to, able to look at over the last 20 years. So if Christianity was in fact invented by the Flavians in order to assist them with their century-long struggle with Judaism, it would merely have been a variation that would have been built upon a very long, well-established theme. We know that using religion for the good of a state was a long-time Roman technique that's been used since the days of Romulus some thousand years prior, and obviously, way before the Flavians ever stepped in. Using religion, using gods, as a way to help those insurgences or those small little battles to stay at a minimum, because they were very expensive to control. This was the way that they did it. So this is nothing new. We, we know from previous episodes that we've covered that mass cooperation and control was the main purpose for religion and their gods, right? We'll see in another quote here, which was more than likely studied by Titus as a teenager during his education at the imperial cult, Ciroso, who writes in year 56 of the Common Era, not only prefigures much of Christian theology, but he also advocates for the state to persuade the masses to adopt the theology most appropriate for the particular empire. 
So this is a quote from Siriso from The Laws, and it's chapter 2, um, verses 15 through 16. I begin, quote, We must persuade our citizens that the gods are our lords, and their rules of all things and what is done is done by their will and authority, and they are the great benefactors of men, and know whoever is and what he does, and what sin he commits, and what he intends to do, and with that piety he fulfills his religious duties. And end quote. Now, there is one thing that we need to understand, that we need to consider about Roman politics and policies. Rome always attempted to never replace the gods of its newly acquired provinces, but simply to absorb them into their current system. So what does that mean? That means that when Vespasian moved in and took over the province of Judea, the Judeans refused to accept and, you know, accommodate the Roman gods as well, as we just had talked about over and over again. So by the end of the first century, Rome had accumulated so many foreign gods that virtually every day of the year celebrated one divinity or another. Every day there was a celebration of a god. You'd worship a different one. I think at one point it was up to some 30,000 gods, I believe, that I had read somewhere. So, so pretty, pretty crazy. But they all provided, you know, people felt comfortable being able to worship their gods. And it was very, very you know, appropriate to worship these other city-state gods as well as we just talked about that the Christians and the Jews refused to acknowledge. And that would be the, you know, the gods of health or the, or the goddess over the, uh, you know, the rains and the growth of the plant, you know, the, the plants. I was going to say plantation, but that's not right. <laughs> Maybe. But Roman citizens were always encouraged to give offerings to all the gods as a way, a way of maintaining the Pax Deorum. The peace of the gods, which was a condition that the Caesars all saw as a beneficial um, entity to the empire. And everybody got what they wanted. It was no problem. And historians are also aware that the Romans used religion as a tool to help them in their conquests. You can imagine that the leader of the Roman army, the consul, was the religious leader capable of communicating with the gods. You remember the gods that would assist in the war or the battle thousands of years before? The god Ashur, right? In fact, the Romans developed a specific ritual for provoking the gods of their enemies to defect to Rome. In this particular ritual... The, the devotion, a Roman soldier sacrificed, sacrificed himself to all the gods, including those of the enemy. And in this way, they imagined they neutralized their opponent's divine assistance. It was actually a fabulous idea. So, as an example, when the Romans went to war with the Jewish rebels in Judea, it had, it had a long tradition of absorbing the religions of its opponents. If the Romans did, in fact, invent the Christian religion or the, the Christian cult, it would have been yet another example of neutralizing an enemy's religion by making it one of their own rather than fighting against it. Rome would simply have transformed the militant Judaism of first century Judea into a new pacifist religion that would more easily absorb into the empire. It would be a fantastic plan. But is that exactly how it happened? 
In any event, it is certain that the Caesars did in fact attempt to control Judaism from Julius Caesar on. In fact, Julius claimed personal authority over the religion and even went as far as to appoint its high priests. And so here's a, here's a letter from Julius Caesar. And I quote, Gaius Julius Caesar, Imperator and High Priest, and Director sendeth greeting. I will that Hyrannicanus, the son of Alexander and his children, have the High Priesthood of the Jews forever. And if at any time hereafter there arise any questions about the Jewish custom, I will that he determine the same. End quote. And this is actually found in uh, Josephus's Jewish Antiquities. And with this, we also know that it was the work of the Roman emperors that appointed all of the high priests that are mentioned and recorded within the New Testament from a circle of families who were all Roman allies. By selecting the individual who would determine any issue of Jewish customs, the Caesars were managing Jewish theology for their own self-interests. Of course, what other way would a Caesar have gone about managing a religion from the inside of the temple? Also, Rome managed to exercise some control over the religion in a way that was unique in the history of its provincial governments. Rome was ultimately able to micromanage the Second Temple Judaism to the extent of being able to determine when its priests could wear their holy vestments. In fact, we get another quote here from Josephus' Antiquities. And I begin, quote, The Romans took possession of the vestments of the high priest and had them reposited in a stone chamber, and seven days before a festival they were delivered back unto them. End quote. Now, in spite of these efforts of absorbing the gods of Rome's provinces, it was unsuccessful in Judea. Judaism refused to permit its gods to be worshipped among all others, and then Rome was forced to battle with one Jewish insurrection after another. Seeing that by replacing the high priest at the temple didn't help control the rebels, then something else would need to be figured out. Maybe by rewriting the Torah, perhaps, the Jewish traditions. Now, I know this whole idea is starting to sound crazy, but this whole idea or a theory about Romans inventing Christianity, it isn't new at all. And I don't really buy into it. I think there's some shades of it, but I, but I don't think it's 100%. But in fact, um, a 19th century German scholar theorized, his name is uh, Bruno Bauer, he theorized that Christianity was Rome's attempt to create a mass religion that encouraged slaves to accept a position in life much like all other religions did from Hammurabi and even earlier, underneath the god Anil and Marduk, of course. But in more recent times, um, we have another scholar by the name of Robert Eisman who concluded that the New Testament was literature of a Judaic messianic movement rewritten with a pro-Roman perspective. So this idea is definitely not a new one, but at the same time, it's not widely accepted by all New Testament scholarship. Even based on Joseph Atwill's work that um, we're kind of reviewing right now, I need to move around to many of his ideas for it, you know, for it to make any logical sense at all. I have to move a lot of parts around to make sense. But he does, however, have about, I don't know, maybe about 50-60% of it right. He just puts the characters into the wrong place or who would be doing the writing, and he kind of messes up a little bit on what he thinks the Gospels were doing. 
But at least from my opinion, anyway, this is what I believe. But there are many holes in his theory that I've decided to not discuss here. Rather, I will correct where I think he went wrong, as, as, as such as assuming that all four of the canonized Gospels were all written at the same time by the same person who believes that Josephus and the Wars of the Jews is all meant to be read together intertextually with the Gospels. That's, that's absolutely implausible, and it doesn't make sense. And, we'll t and I think from these past episodes, we understand that it doesn't make sense. Right? The problem is that we know, or at least we are very certain that all four, although we're very pro-Roman, they wrote independently of one another. And we can see this as stylistically. They are unique from one another and only borrowed from the works of Josephus, as well as from the campaign from Titus. And we'll examine this in closer future episodes. But we know for sure that when Mark started, we can tell obviously from what he takes away from Titus's campaign and what he takes away from, and not just from Titus's campaign, he takes from, to, um, from other scholars and other philosophers that wrote during the mid-70s. So he borrowed a lot of this stuff contemporaneously, right? So we can tell exactly when Mark starts. We can tell that Matthew comes in next because he borrows a lot from what Mark wrote. And even verbatim, well, as well as some expansions and in some improvements and some even some corrections where Matthew wanted to make some changes based upon his feelings. Do we see the same thing with Luke? And, and, and first of all, there's no reason why Matthew would write like the day after Mark releases. That just doesn't make sense. That's not how book writing happens. It happened with probably five years to a decade later. And the same thing with Luke and the same thing with John. And you can absolutely see how they write uniquely to each other. But you can tell how they take away from each. Now, even John, who writes really, really late, he writes the most freest of all, stylistically-wise. But he still incorporates, even though he's writing in the 90s, he's still incorporating a lot of these scenarios taken from Titus's campaign, which I feel is really, really interesting. We can, however, see that the Gospels were written to be understood on different levels. On the surface, they are, of course, they are a description of Jesus' ministry and the miracle workings of a Messiah who would, who would rise from the dead. But on another level, they could, they, they could understand and see that there is some satire with respect to Titus' military campaign through Judea. We can see this, and we're going to review a lot more you know, in-depth this particular subject. But we can clearly see that, see that as Jesus and Titus share in several parallel experiences, such as sharing the same locations, the same actions, and in the same exact sequence, in fact, the parallels that we will discuss are just way too exact and way too complex to have simply occurred naturally or by chance, as what Christian apologists will claim. So some scholars, such as Josephus, Joseph Atwill, he suggests that the canonized Gospels were designed to become apparent as satire as soon as they were read in conjunction with the Wars of the Jews and were created as a unified piece of literature whose characters and stories interact with each other. For example, their interactions give many of Jesus' sayings as darkly Comedic or comical, meaning that only some elite members of society would notice and get a kick out of it, right? They'd get to notice and enjoy. It's like, oh, look, look, look what Mark just, just wrote. He took this piece from Josephus, and this is what the real meaning is. Laugh out loud. But there is some, also some very dark comedic and almost horrific 
comedic play on names that lampoon in some members of the Jewish rebellion, such as that of Simon and that of John, who would be represented as Simon Peter and John the Apostles. So I'm going to address the problems with this hypothesis um, later on, but for now, let's just examine the context and the evidence that we have, and let's make a comparison. And again, let's draw our own conclusions. So this is where we're going to start looking at some interesting things here. So the interesting facts that can be examined is the relationship between Jesus's ministry, as pointed out in the Gospels, and Titus's military campaign that can be construed as satirical can be found in the Gospel of Matthew. So in this passage, Jesus is described at the beginning of his ministry as asking Simon and Andrew and the sons of Zebedee to, and here it is in parentheses, to follow me and become, in parentheses, fishers of men. So the two pieces of real smart information we have to pay attention to, follow me and become fishers of men. So I want you to consider for a moment this verse that's found in Matthew, or the author from Matthew, and I'm going to begin, quote, in my best Matthew voice. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is now close at hand. And walking along the shore, the lake of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, throwing a dragnet into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. End quote. And you can find that if you want to flip open your Bibles, or for me, my Bible hub, an app on my phone. That's in Matthew chapter 4. In verses 17 through 19. And then even more interesting, or rather incriminating, we have this verse found as a redaction of Matthew, whether it was his intentions or not. And this is in Luke um, chapter 5, um, verses 1 and 10. Now, in quotation, While people pressed upon him to hear the words of God, he was standing near the lake of Gazanarth. And also where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid, henceforth, you will be catching men. Catching men. Luke chapter 5, 1 and 10. Additionally, from another passage that we get from this author for the book of Matthew, we get Jesus foresees that the cities of Gennesareth, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee, will face tribulation for their wickedness. So this is important. And so here's the quotation from Matthew. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. All right, so that's in Matthew 11, 21, and 23. But what makes these statements so strange coming from Jesus, or at least what this author wanted, wanted his Jesus to say or predict, is what we find written at least a decade before Matthew writes this, taken from the wars of the Jews. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Because Josephus in the War of the Jews, he actually describes a sea battle where he says that the Romans literally were catching Jews like fish in a battle that occurred at Gennesareth, where Titus attacked a band of Jewish rebels led by leaders whose name was Jesus. Here's the passage from the words of the Jews, and I start the quote. This lake is called by the people of the country, the Lake of Gennesareth. They had a great number of ships, and they were fitting up. 
that they might undertake a sea fight. But as the Romans were building a wall around their camp, Jesus and his party made a sally upon them. Sometimes the Romans leaped, not their ships, with swords in their hands and slew them. But when some of them met the vessels, the Romans caught them in the middle and destroyed at their ships and destroyed themselves who were taken in them. And for such were drowning in the sea. And if they lifted their heads up above the water, they were either killed by darts, I'm guessing arrows or spears, or caught by the vessels. But if the desperate case they were in, they attempted to swim to their enemies, the Romans would cut off their heads or their hands. I think you have to understand we're reinterpreting this, and that's an end quote. Um, this is broken down from Greek into English. So this is from Josephus, Josephus Wars of the Jews, and this is from volume three. Um, and these are from the pages of 463. 466, 467, also 526 and 527, you can find the details of this battle that are basically depicting Roman soldiers coming across a band of Jews who were either in their boats and they were taking on attack by the Romans, and the, the Romans are basically in their ships and they're also on land. So these Jews are basically either jumping from their ships as the Roman ships would ram. Because if you've seen these Roman ships before, they actually have like these big steel heads on them that would be used to pierce the particular enemy ships and then ultimately sink them. So what would happen is all these Jews would either try to fight or they jump into the water. And while they're in the water, the Romans were basically taking their long spears and they were stabbing them in the head, stabbing them in the back, stabbing them wherever they could. And if they were coming up and try to get onto the ship, they would cut off their hands and they would cut off their heads. If they tried to approach the beach, they were simply just massacred by the dozen. Now, one could imagine that a first century peasant living in the mid-70s, early 80s, um, in, one of, in one of these Christian churches, who had heard of Jesus' doomsday prophecy, which describes what would become of the inhabitants of the cities of Gennesareth Lake, and also had heard or read about the passages from Josephus' War of the Jews, which describes their destruction. They would have understood the association as the evidence for Christ's divinity. They would have believed that what Jesus had prophesied in the Gospels, Josephus records as an event as having come to pass. Now, don't forget, in many of these handwritten Bibles during this time, especially those of the Eastern churches, a lot of these passages of the Jewish wars, as well as antiquities, were actually included within their Bibles. They could actually, so if they're literate, they could absolutely make the connection. However, an uneducated peasant or slave, could not have understood that there was another prophecy that came to pass within these passages. We are talking about Jesus' exhortation to become fishers or catchers of men. While standing on the spot where the Jews would be caught like fish during the coming war with the Jews. However, any noble or educated Roman who was aware of the details of, the, of this particular sea battle that took place at Genesar, would have seen the irony in a Messiah who was named Savior, inventing the phrase, fishers of men, while standing on the very beach where the Jews were caught like fish. So if this wasn't a coincidence of Mark and chapter 1, verse 17, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, 
then it was a blatant use of Josephus' works to create a dark and even morbid comedy about Romans killing Jews. And we do know for a fact that the author for Mark pulled most of his work from Josephus' War of the Jews. He used a ton of it. So this little detail gives us a small peek inside the head of the canonized Gospels, all four of them. And then Matthew simply copies Mark and then makes corrections where he feels necessary a decade later, and then so on and so forth. Therefore, these two fulfilled prophecies exemplify the two levels on which the New Testament can be and perhaps should be understood. You see, Jesus' prophecy regarding the destruction of the Chorazin and the Capernaum is completely straightforward and meant to be taken literally. I hope I'm pronouncing that city straight or correctly. But we also see that the other fulfilled prophecies were Jesus' prediction that his followers would become fishers of men. It's not so straightforward. It could only be understood by someone who was aware of the details about the sea battle between the Romans and the Jewish fishermen at, at, at Genazareth. Only those educated enough to have read the works of Josephus could have seen the prophetic irony where Jesus is literally standing on the beach, because it was another Jesus, remember? A real Jesus that was making that comment where Jews would literally be caught like fish. Now, if the gospel writers were in fact referring to the Jewish rebels as the fish, they were using a metaphor that was actually common in the first century. So, for instance, um, a chief rabbi, and his name is Rabban Gamaliel, spoke of his disciples through a parable in which they were compared to four different types of fish. One, an unclean fish. Two, a clean fish, a fish from the river Jordan, and a fish from the sea. Roman authors also used the metaphor as well. So, Juvenal, a contemporary Roman uh, poet, specifically compares fugitive slaves and informers to that fish. Or that of fish, I should say. <laughs> so, as I'm scratching my head here, so when we break the structure down of this deep, dark comedy starring Jesus, we can see that when Jesus speaks about catching men in a seemingly symbolic sense about his ministry, we also get his version of catching men again as Zareth as coming to pass. The cruel joke being that it came to pass literally and not figuratively in a figurative manner. So if the New Testament and the wars of the Jews do in fact engage in a scornful interactive comedy regarding fishers for men at Genazareth, they also work to create another wry fish joke, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, where Jesus predicted the woe for Chorazin, the city. Many scholars have always presumed that Jesus was referring to a Galilean fishing village, However, Josephus gives us a different meaning for the word chorazin altogether. So what Josephus says in quote, and here's from the Wars of the Jews, the country that also lies over against this lake hath the same name of Genazareth. Some have thought it to be a vein of the Nile because it produces the chorazin fish as well as the lake does which is near Alexandria. End quotation. So, while at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus predicted woe for the Chorazin, 
and said that henceforth his disciples would follow him and become fishers of men. Now, in Titus's experience, it was strangely parallel to that of Jesus's prophecies in that Titus literally brought woe to the Cheresians. And not to mention, his soldiers literally followed him and became, in quotation, fishers of men. That is, of course, the soldiers fished for the inhabitants of the village named for the Chorazin fish. So if the irony of comparing the onset of Jesus' ministry and Titus' military campaign was created deliberately by the Gospels, it apparently stemmed from the fact that they all saw the sardonic humor in the idea of fishing for the Chorazians, who we have the same name as a fish. As they attempted to swim safely to the, to the soldiers, the soldiers pierced them with their spears and cut off their heads and their hands while floundering in the water. So that's actually pretty disgusting, if you would think about it that way. It's pretty morbid when you think about that the Gospels are saying this in this new light, right? However, the parallels that we can see between the experiences of Jesus and Titus at Gennesareth are not just limited to the literal understanding of men catching fish, or Jews in this instance, in the Sea of Galilee. The first part of Jesus' statement is, follow me, and also, don't be afraid. But now when you read the passage that Josephus writes, where the Jews were being caught, he records that the soldiers who were doing the catching were also told by Titus, do not be afraid. And indeed, follow me. And in this case, it was clearly Josephus was speaking about Titus in this particular situation. So here's what Josephus says in War of the Jews in um, volume 3, um, 487. And beginning quotation. For you know very well that I go into danger first and make the first attack upon the enemies. Do not you therefore desert me, but persuade yourselves that God will be assisting to my onset. And now Titus made his own horse march first against the enemy. And here's another one. Begin quotation. As soon as ever Titus had ever this, he leaped upon his horse and rode apace down to the lake, by which lake he marched and then entered the city, the first of them all, as did the others soon after him. And again, that's in War of the Jews, volume 3, 497. So now you can see that Josephus pointed out to us three times that Titus was the first to enter into battle. And once again, the Roman soldiers who would be doing the fishing literally followed Titus, which the Gospels used as parallels for Jesus in their narrative. I don't think that it's odd that the authors for Mark and Matthew used typologies from Josephus' works to create stories and dialogues for the Jesuses. But when reading what Josephus is really talking about, it's awfully anti-Semitic and totally pro-Roman. Who were these guys anyway? So there are other New Testament passages where Jesus asks his disciples to follow me and the passage from Josephus in which Titus asks his troops to follow him so that they can become fishers of men have a number more of other parallels as well. In addition to these, these are just a couple. Just like Jesus was sent by his father, God, so was Titus. Titus was also sent by his father, Vespasian, who, don't forget, remember, he was also deified as a god and ruler over the entire Roman Empire. So consider this quote from Josephus. Begin the quote. 
So he sent away his son Titus to Caesarea, that he might bring the army that lay there in Scythopolis. That's in War of the Jews, Volume 3, IX, page 446. So let's think about this for a moment now. Even though there were literally thousands of other possible locations for the gospel authors, Mark writing first, of course, how's his Jesus start his ministry as Titus would begin his military campaign against the Jews and the narratives that will follow starting at the lake of Genesareth and in a manner that would involve fishing for men, one to be taken as metaphor by Jesus and the other as literal by Josephus about Titus killing Jews while still in the water trying to swim for safety. So now we have to start asking ourselves, was this just a coincidence? And are these narratives, these narratives, were they completely written independently, one of another? Or did Mark, in fact, borrow this theme along with many others from the works of Josephus to secretly crap on the Jews without, without most people even picking up on it? But for whose pleasure? His own? Matthew, Luke, John will clearly follow, you know, whether intentionally or not, the same veiled anti-Semitic storytelling. So furthermore, the parallels that Mark and the others make about Jesus are the same kind of typological connection to that of Moses. And Mark does this a lot, actually. But Mark does the same exact thing with Titus from the works of Josephus that matches concepts. And, and most importantly, and most obviously, the locations. So there must have been a reason why Mark didn't at least use a different location so not, not to be so obvious. But then again, we don't even know if this was you know, for his own dark comedic or anti-Semitic enjoyment or pleasure, his hidden, getting a hidden laugh out of this thing. And, and was, or was Titus even aware of the gospel and get kicked out of it too? I don't think so. I don't think that Titus gave a rat's ass about this new Christian movement that was growing this religion, as again at this time it was still so small, unrecognizable. Nobody even really mentioned it. Nobody even mentioned Paul. And Paul was active through the 50s through the 60s when this would have been happening, right? So, you know, Josephus never even mentions him. But it was the Jewish rebellion and the constant civil wars that kept him occupied. And religiously, he had his own imperial cult to worry about and the priesthood to deal with. He really had no reason to even read the Gospel of Mark. And he was already dead for a few years before Matthew was ever composed. So... I, who, who, who knows? I think that there was some, I, I, th I think there was some, you know, help that was coming from the imperial palace. And I have a feeling, and I think this can be um, tested as well, is that specifically literature that was going to be distributed throughout the Roman Empire, as well as the Roman provinces, had to be gone through an editing process, or at least it had to go through a system of making sure that there was nothing that was derogatory mentioned about the emperor, mentioned about Rome in general, and making sure that it was anything that was compromising the, uh, the, gov you know, the, the government, right? This is very important. So this had to go through all these eyes that would take a look at this literature, and that includes the gospels that were being released into the provinces of Rome, anywhere that, you know, Rome had power. And, it also, and so as Josephus' works had to go through this. So it had several groups of governmental eyes that had to go through and review all of this material. 
I, I think I should have been referring that to as a governmental censorship more than editing, but I'm pretty certain that there was a ton of editing that was going on, as we'll see as we get into the second and third and fourth century. But we can look deeper into other parallels to see where this author for Mark created some of his other narratives for Jesus from Titus as told through the Jewish wars. For example, Mark has Jesus predict that a son of man would come to Judea before the generation that would crucify him had passed away, encircle Jerusalem with a wall, and then destroy the second temple, not to leave a stone on top of another. So that's all very important to know that Mark is talking about this, who's writing in around 75-76 of the Common Era. Mark knew that Titus was the only individual that could have said to have done that. Now, now, not that I agree with Joseph Atwell's theory, but one can see why Titus fulfilled Jesus' prophecies concerning the Son of Man coming and fulfilling these prophecies. Atwell actually, actually um, proposes that Mark was having his Jesus understand that Titus was the Son of Man coming to accomplish these particular prophecies. But we all know that this is just, you know, good movie-making fodder, and, you know, it's not realistic at all, as the points that I made before. But Titus did, in fact, arrive in Jerusalem before the generation that crucified Christ had passed away. In 70 CE, he did encircle, Titus did encircle the city with a huge wall and cut them off from supplies and water. And then he had the temple demolished to the ground with not a stone to be able to stack on top of another. Well, in fact, that Mark wrote in 75 or later, we see that he is creating a narrative for his Jesus using the very interesting theme. This very interesting theme indeed. These overlapping narratives between Jesus and Titus make it seem far less random and way more intentional, for sure. And this is just the beginning of the uncanny parallels that are found between the two men who called themselves the Son of God and whose ministries would both begin in Galilee and both end in Jerusalem. Okay, everybody, I think this is probably a good place to slow it down and come to a stop, as I think we were encroaching over an hour now or so but um yeah yeah these last two episodes they're pretty important in terms of taking a look at who exactly were the gospel writers you know mark matthew luke and john and we may never know their names but we may have an idea who they were associated with and what kind of people they were we will be able to at least tell that much um so anyway i hope that you enjoyed this particular episode and I hope that this is um, really helping you out in your discovery for where you are in your faith and your search for Jesus and your just your basic search for theology and your understanding in history. So again, this is not designed to be, you know, to offend anybody. This is just a, a place that I'm using to, you know, find truth, to help those who are trying to seek the truth and not make the judgments in life that we do based upon something that we read about, hearsay, heard about, heard from the pulpit from a pastor from years ago and, you know, from our childhood and through indoctrination and, 
you know, I think there's just so much more in life. And I think that being able to break down the history of religions and their gods, I think it helps us have a little bit more understanding when, where, why, how, you know, just covering all the bases. As you can see, we're doing a real good job at connecting the dots, and I'm making sure we don't miss anything. And we're going to go way deeper into this. So if you're really interested in the history of the Bible, and I know that we covered a ton of the Old Testament because I love that Second Temple Judaism, and I love the Sadducee cult and everything that goes on about that. But now we're going to get into another cult altogether, and I'm firmly calling it the Jesus cult. So again, I hope that you enjoyed this. And if you think that you have a friend or a relative or somebody that might enjoy this particular subject matter, please share with them and help me get up some, some more listener, listeners for this um, particular show. Um, like to crank it up a little bit more so we can actually have some interviews on here to make it worthwhile instead of just my, my top three. <laughs> you know, I'm kidding with that. But um, yeah, with that said... I thank you guys, my fellow brothers and sister heathens, and to my believer friends. Man, I still love you guys too, and I hope that, uh, you know, I hope you don't trip me when we're out on a run. Anyway, love you guys. Have a fantastic week. For goodness sakes, be good humans. <laughs>